Hi, welcome to Off the Charts. This is Andy Smith, your host. I'm here with Emily Weber, our producer. Hi. Today we're talking to, uh, it's an embarrassing word, I think you'd be embarrassed by it, but a, sort of a renaissance <laughs> man, um, Bennett Lorber. He is uh, the, an, an infectious diseases physician at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia. But I knew him, he was, for 23 years, he was chief of infectious diseases. So, you know, as he would describe it, he was, I guess, the head detective mm, yeah. uh, of the department. Um, but I think what you're going to find with him is just endless, interesting things about this man. Mm -hmm. um, way beyond medicine. He's a painter. He plays guitar. Um, knows a little about everything. Mm -hmm. He's one of those people that you can uh, imagine as a professor strumming the guitar in the corner of the office oh, you and having all the, all the kids come in and <laughs> gather around and yeah, you want him as your professor yeah. I mean this is a guy I, I would think people must leave after learning under him and uh, just endlessly be influenced by him through the rest mm -hmm. of their lives he had a lot of great stuff to say about um, how that influences medicine yeah he talks about that we talk a little about uh, infectious diseases around the world what he's most afraid of what's realistic um, I think it's really interesting. I think it's one of our best so far. Yep. All right, here he is, Bennett Lorber. So I think um, we're here with Bennett Lorber. He's uh, infectious diseases at Temple University Hospital. Um, I think you're our first guest with a Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my fault. It's not your fault. <laughs> that just popped up on its own. Uh, an old friend of mine created that page and uh, sent me an email and said, I made a Wikipedia page for you, and, you know, take a look at it if you don't like it. That was I'll very informative, it. actually. So. It was good to have. Um, but it gave me even a couple, even though I've known you for years, um, gave me a couple things that I don't think I realized about you. Um, so your undergraduate degree, you went to Swarthmore. Yes. But it was interesting to me, you were um, zoology? And art history. Right. Um, do you find, is that a common path to a medical student? <laughs> no, no. Although I think uh, more and more medical schools are uh, willing to consider uh, and in many instances even seek out people who are uh, majoring in college in uh, sort of non-traditional, not biology, chemistry, physics, uh, the people who are majoring in uh, in literature, in in art history, and in languages, hmm. yeah. No, that, you know why I find that interesting is because I would have thought the opposite. You know, we live in a world of specialization. It seems to me. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised that the the med schools are interested in bringing somebody in who didn't major in biology or science or physics or something like that. Yeah, well, I think the most successful doctors are those people who are uh, broadly educated, uh, broadly open to ideas that enable them to, uh, to talk to anybody and to relate to their patients. And I think that uh, I'm a strong proponent of liberal arts education. Mm -hmm. I think a great liberal arts education, uh, like the one I I got at Swarthmore, uh, teach you how to think, how to uh, evaluate evidence, how to make a good argument. Uh, all of those things, I think, help you be a better doctor. So I think 
Medical schools are starting to figure that out. Okay. What do you think of today's med students? I think they're great. Um, I think they're, you know, they're just as smart. They're uh, much better informed than we were when I was a medical student. Well, I always look at my kids who are um, uh, 15 and 16. Yeah, they know a lot. I, I think they know way more than yeah. I knew. <laughs> yeah. And the information is so accessible. I mean, thanks, yes. you know, thanks to the Internet. Um, things are different than they used to be. When I was a medical student, uh, almost no one was married. Mm. And uh, now many students uh, are married or uh, have partners. And uh, medical students today are come out of medical school deeply in debt. Um, they often uh, are looking to have a home. That's um, one of the things that's wrong with medicine at the moment is that because people are so deeply in debt, the debt is driving people into medical specialties uh, where they can more quickly uh, have the resources to pay off Make their, their debts. money back. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's it's a shame. So infectious disease doctors are among the lowest paid of all physicians, hmm. if not the lowest paid. Really, uh, but we have about the highest job satisfaction. Huh. So I that's a message that I would like students to get you know you, whether you pay off your debt in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years you know you pay it off and everybody makes enough money to get where they want to go eventually and the job satisfaction is extraordinarily important you have to get up every day and go to work if you don't like what you're doing it doesn't matter how much you're getting paid it doesn't make up for it why do you think um, infectious diseases is such a high satisfaction I mean I can guess I, I knowing you and knowing the people I've met it's a lot of figuring things out. Yeah, it's the purest detective work in all of medicine. It's the most fun. It's the most satisfying for people who like to solve puzzles. And also, it's so constantly different. It's never the same. It's not hearts all day or kidneys all day or brains all day. It's infections and hearts and kidneys and brains and skin and everywhere, joints and so mm -hmm. on. And there are new ones all the time. I mean, if you just think about you know, what's happened in the last 20 years. Since I started in infectious diseases, there are over 60 infectious disease entities we knew nothing about when I started my training. Wow. So if you just think about uh, Zika uh, or um, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or some of the new highly resistant uh, and, uh, microbes um, and on and on, I mean, it's, it's always changing. Um, it's fun because you can prevent diseases as well as, um, as treat them. I mean, right now, in our, right downstairs, we are giving immunizations to people who are traveling to the Philippines mm -hmm. and uh, potentially preventing them from becoming ill. Um, you make people better. You can deal with populations as well as individual people. It's, it's immensely satisfying. What, what frightens you more like when in, in the field? Is a bigger problem, you know, you read so much about antibiotic resistance, things like that, and then you see movies that always deal with the sensational aspect of a epidemic or something like that. I, is that a realistic, what you see in the movies, a realistic? Does that frighten you? Is that possible in real life? Or, is, or are the day-to-day -day problems a much bigger 
No, it's issue. so the potential for a catastrophic epidemic is real, mm-hmm. and the one that I worry about the most, and that I think is most realistic, is influenza. I mean, if we have an influenza virus that has the ability to cause high mortality, like the bird flu, for mm, example, yeah. and becomes as contagious as the regular every year flu, that's a recipe for catastrophe. Yeah. So, you know, going back in, you know, to 1918, when we had the uh, worldwide uh, pandemic of influenza that killed millions of people, millions. I mean, that could happen again. So and you're talking about something like the flu. The people flu. T- people tend to worry about the, you know. I'm much less worried about exotic <coughs> viruses that exactly. pop up in, you know, in uh, other parts of the world, Africa, Southeast Asia, and so on. Flu than I am about the, influenza. Yeah. Still has the ability to kill millions. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Are you, you think we're prepared no. as a society? Or no. I don't think we're prepared. <coughs> but I'm very optimistic that eventually we will develop a universal influenza vaccine Hmm. so that it works against all flu viruses instead of trying to figure out which one is likely to come around this year and make a vaccine that year to try to prevent it I think we'll have a vaccine that will work against all flu viruses and make influenza uh, a very unimportant illness interesting no more than just a cold if you even get it right is that what you're saying yeah you mentioned the detective work, and that to me is what I've always thought of you and in that sense. Um, am I correct? Was there a story about you once? Um, I don't know if Penn wrote it or Swarthmore wrote it, or um, you were talking about your approach to patients and that what you mentioned before about talking to them and learning about their life. And I swear I remember a, an article about you were talking to somebody who had either neck pain, head pain, something, and you talked oh, yeah, to that, that, <laughs> You know I, what I'm talking about? And yes, I do. The guy I, played pool, right? That's right. Just, I had for, forgotten about that. I'm curious about that story. Um, I'm glad I remembered it <laughs> correctly. So I, I was sent a patient um, who essentially had uh, very bad headaches hmm. and had seen uh, a bunch of headache specialists and just wasn't doing well. And the only reason he was sent to me, I'm an infectious disease doctor, was uh, because his primary care doctor said, well, those infectious disease doctors, they're good at figuring things <laughs> out. So that's why he was sent to me. Sure. Uh, and uh, one of the things that infectious disease doctors do is we ask a lot of questions that other doctors don't normally ask, like, what do you eat? And where do you go? And do you have pets? Hmm. And... Uh, um, what do you do for fun, and what kind of hobbies do you have? And when I talked to this guy, it turned out that he had, uh, before these headaches had begun, had started to play pool and had become obsessed with pool, and he was playing pool hours and hours every day. Um, So what I had him do was, in my office, he wasn't complaining of a headache, and we went into the conference room, and I had him lean over the conference room table as if he were uh, going to make a pool shot, and had him hold that position for a few minutes, and he began to have a headache. <laughs> and um, 
So to make a long story short, we got him outfitted with a, a basically a neck brace that prevented him from hyperextending his neck, and his headaches went away. Hmm. So that's one of the things that's fun about infectious diseases. Well, and what's neat about that is, as you said, it had nothing to do with an infectious disease. <laughs> right. So let me, I'll, I'll tell you my, my favorite story about this. So I have a whole separate life as a professional painter. Yep. And my training in painting um, has made me a better observer than many doctors are. Hmm. Uh, and it's something that you can learn. You can learn to pay more attention to y- your environment. And that has helped me make some diagnoses that I might not have made otherwise. Uh, but my, my favorite example is um, I was asked uh, by one of the residents to see a patient who had a pneumonia that wasn't responding to antibiotics. And uh, I was told that he was a man who had had a bone marrow transplant uh, it was successful, and he had been doing well, but he developed a fever and a cough and a headache, and he had been admitted to the hospital with pneumonia. They gave him antibiotics, and he just wasn't getting better. So I said I would see him, and I looked at his chart, and I went and looked at his x-rays myself, and then I went into the room to see him. And when I entered the room, the man was laying in bed, and he looked uncomfortable and ill, and his wife was sitting on the bed holding his hand, and on the night table next to him was a framed 8 by 10 color photograph of this man with a parrot on his shoulder. <laughs> and there's a... In there's the hospital room. This in the hospital room. Okay. And there's an illness called psittacosis, which uh, is a type of pneumonia that you get from being exposed to certain birds that carry this kind of bacterium. So I... Uh, I excused myself from the room, and I went out, and I found the resident, and I said, very funny. And he said, what's funny? And I said, your little joke. And he said, what joke? And I said, (laughs) you asked me to see a man with a pneumonia that's not getting better on the usual antibiotics. And I go in the room, and there's a picture of him with a parrot. (laughs) And the resident said, there is? Uh. And so anyhow, so the man had psittacosis. We changed his antibiotics to an antibiotic that is effective for that particular problem. He was dramatically better by the next day. He went home. We proved the diagnosis with blood tests. The diagnosis was right there in front of their face. They just didn't just pay attention. Yeah, didn't see that. So, That's a great story. That's fun. You must be really good at the – you'd be good at the uh, – have you ever heard of these escape the room? No. Where you go into a, uh, a locked room, usually with a group of people, and there's clues everywhere but very hidden, and you have one hour or whatever the time is to – figure out the clues uh-huh. and unlock the door to get out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> well, when, I, when I was little, um, my father used to play this game with me. We would go uh, to visit someone, and when we got home, he'd hand me a piece of paper and a pencil, and he'd say, draw me the floor plan of the living room. Oh, wow. And, you know, show me where the chairs were and where the windows were and where the piano was. And so it... It trained me to pay attention when I went someplace because so, I knew he was going to do this. So <laughs> I would start, you know, noticing things. And as time went by, it got more sophisticated. You know, what color were the drapes? Yeah, because you got used to it. <laughs> what color is the rug? <clears throat> you know, where was the door to the kitchen? You know, that, that kind of stuff. You'd be an expert. Did they have a radio? <laughs> so it's – and it's helpful. 
Do you find that in younger doctors or is there such a rush to let's run some tests? Yeah, no, there's a giant move away from the patient, you know, because there's a ton of information on the computer. And, you know, I don't want to downplay the value of that. I mean, CAT scans have changed my life, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the information that is available to me now when I see a patient compared with the information that was available when I started uh, before there was such a thing as a CAT scan, for example. And there are many other examples. But, you know, there's still a a tremendous amount that you can glean from talking to people and asking the right questions and then examining them and knowing what to look for. Um, Plus, you know, it's fun. You get to know people. Yeah. You find out interesting things about them. How do you how do you pass this on? I, I, you've won tons, almost every teaching award there is. How do you pass this on to people when we live in such a busy world? Then you know the first reaction is, how can I figure this out immediately, as opposed to, let's all just sit around, you know, let's let's sit for a minute and talk to this person. Yeah. So you you uh, you can show people by example. Um, first of all, you can show them that it's it's fun. I mean, it's fun to talk to people and discover, (laughs) you know, that they were a pilot in the Second World War and they were, uh, their plane was shot down over Germany and they spent two years in a prisoner of war camp and what that was like. Um, And you, if you don't talk to people, you don't learn those things. You never would have known that thing, yeah. So, so it's fun and uh, you can show people by example, but also I I do certain things. So I'll tell you one of the things I do. when I work with a new group of uh, residents and students, for example, I give them a few days to get used to me so I'm not <laughs> threatening and they're not worried. And then uh, we'll go in a room to talk with the patient and after a few minutes, I will uh, turn from the patient and turn to the team and I'll say, everyone turn around and face the wall. And I'll have them all look at the wall. And then I'll tap one on the shoulder and I'll say, tell me one thing you noticed about Mrs. So-and-so. Oh, wow. And this is the old uh, game your father used yeah, to play. Yeah, it's exactly right. <laughs> what did you notice? And so they almost never can tell me more than one thing. I'm serious. Uh, I'm sure. You know, and usually they say, she has an IV. And I say, right, where is it? You know, is it? And they, you know, they're bewildered. You know, what is it in her, <laughs> is it in her hand, her arm? Which arm? Is it in her neck? You know what's hanging in the bag, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. And then I, it's such a, an easy thing to do. Then I rattle off a long list of observations, including not just observations about the patient, but observations about what's on the night table and are there uh, get well cards and are there flowers or balloons or pictures of the grandchildren or whatever. I rattle off all that stuff. And then the next day, when you take that same group of people in a room, you can see them. They're mm. scanning the room. They're paying attention. <laughs> their eyes are darting here and there because they know I'm going to ask them, so they're attentive. And if you do that two or three times, people start to pay attention. Getting better at that. Yeah, it's not hard. It's mm-hmm. just something you... And all those type of things, when you're seeing the, um, the cards, the well wishes, and mm-hmm. the pictures of the grandchildren, what's that telling you? I mean, that does give you insight, correct, into... Sure. How are they going to do when they go home? Exactly. Right? <laughs> and you learn, you, you have a sense of, you know, well, here's somebody that people care about. 
and you know that and and I can ask them about it you know are these your grandchildren where do they live and you find out you know when they go home you know the daughter will stop by every day and make sure mom is okay or Mm -hmm. the son will be able to go to the grocery store or whatever or they they have no family or the family's all on the other side of the country or and they live on a a six-floor walk-up apartment with no elevator and they can't walk up a flight of stairs without being short of breath, that isn't going to work. It's not going to work. Did you always know you were going to go into medicine? I mean, when you were an undergraduate with those, uh, with the art history and the zoology, is that, was that your goal? Yes. Medicine? Yeah. Uh, But I sort of had different thoughts about what I was going to do. So at first I thought I wanted to be a surgeon. Hmm. and uh, the truth is, I was good in the operating room, but I didn't like it. Hmm. I didn't like being in the operating room. What was it about it? It was problematic in medical school because I was good with my hands. They thought I liked it, and they'd give me more things to do. Oh. And I didn't want to do more well, things. Well, you don't get to talk to the patient very much. <laughs> no. Um, what, what else? I mean, what was there something I d- about it? I just it? didn't like the atmosphere. I didn't, I, you know, this sounds silly, but I don't like having a mask over my face. Yeah. Uh, well, it bothered me. Uh, I had trouble with my glasses. They were always sort of, you know, slipping down my face. And um, I just felt uncomfortable. I just didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I had a little period where um, I thought about going into psychiatry I thought about, and, and my, my intention when I start, finished medical school was to be a general internist, okay. practice general internal medicine. Uh, but then I found my way into infectious diseases, and it's just too much fun. Was it a mentor, or did you just do uh, a rotation through? And Well, I have uh, two sons. Uh, my uh, older son had a serious illness. And I didn't want to enter into a practice situation until he was better. He's fine now. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was pretty ill. And so I was looking for something to do. And um, Temple had recently hired its first full-time infectious disease doctor, uh, Bob Swenson. And uh, Bob was extremely well-trained in infectious diseases and very bright guy and he lived about a block away from me and I drove him to temple every morning yeah and um, so he would tell me stories about what he was doing and I asked him you know this was before there was a match and so on and I could I you know spend a year of doing fellowship and I liked it and my son was still ill at the end of the year I did another year (laughs) and uh, then Dr. Sherry offered me a job and I still had this idea in my head I was going to be a general internist I thought, well, I'll do this until my son is better. Mm-hmm. And here I am more than 40 years later still <laughs> doing it. You would have been a great still general practitioner, fun. though. I don't know. No? I don't know. It's, uh, it's daunting. You know, there's so much to know. I mean, I think there's, like, so much to know in infectious diseases, and general practice physicians need to know about a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, and the other issue, I think, with any special especially general practitioners, the people I interact with, it sounds like such a big percentage of your time is taken up learning your new computer system and filling out paperwork. And yeah, we all, it's just an incredible... We all have that. Yeah. But, you know, there's the, the other side to it. So I have the luxury of I don't have to see a patient every 15 minutes. Okay. And I, I schedule patients 
based on what I think the problem is. So I actually talk to people before they come to see me. Okay. So most of the people that I see are people in the hospital, and I see them as a consultant. Okay. So we're, they have a fever, and the doctor doesn't know why, so we're the fever detectives. Okay. But the patients that I see in the office are people who are referred to me by other doctors, and and I often talk to the patients most of the time before they come to see me, and I so I know what the issue is. So if it's somebody who's been sick for three days uh, with a fever and a rash, uh, that's going to take less time than somebody who's had fever for seven months and has been hospitalized three times and has had a million tests and they still don't know why. Mm -hmm. That person needs a lot of time. So I can block out time. You ever find yourself stumped? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do in those situations? I mean, are there situations I tell people I don't know what's wrong with you. And I often say to people, one of the greatest diagnostic tools that we have is time. Mm. And so what we're going to do is we're going to continue to follow you. And if something changes, if one day you wake up and you have a swollen lymph gland under your neck or there's a rash on your legs, or you have a swollen ankle, call me right away, and then, and then we have a place to go to find, potentially find an answer. So I, I tell people that, but yeah, sometimes I have absolutely no idea. I often see people that are in the wrong place, where you know they clearly, in my mind, have a rheumatologic disease, mm-hmm. and my major job is to tell them this is not an infection, and you need a different kind of doctor. And I, how I, often does that happen? Does that happen a lot, where you end up being the first person, and then you direct them to who they should go to? Well, I'm usually the second person. You're the second but, person, um, but it doesn't happen a lot. But it happens, you know, not it's not rare. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things um, that I wanted to talk to you about is you have so many interests outside of medicine. Um, I know you're an accomplished painter, artist. Um, you play the guitar. I think folk music is there. Yeah, I, so I, I don't have any great musical talent. Okay. Uh, but I'm persistent. And so <laughs> I've, I've played long enough uh, and hard enough that I have a certain level of ac- accomplishment just because I'm stubborn and I've stuck with it and it's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I have about 15 guitars at the moment. You can never have too many guitars. <laughs> and uh, and I play mostly folk music, mm-hmm. three-finger picking uh, style guitar. But I play a few other kinds of guitar too, but that's what I do mostly. It's fun. How do things like that and the painting help you be a better physician? I mean, we've talked a little about the concentration and the observation and things like that. Yeah, so I think the painting thing is more directly related in that I can take the power of of looking, observing, seeing uh, to the bedside. Um, But the other thing is I think all of us, no matter what we do, need things in our lives that are uh, regenerative, restorative, you know, you need to get your battery recharged. And so for me, you know, playing the guitar uh, is that, and, uh, and painting is that. Yeah. And you can't do everything 
and you certainly can't do everything at once, but you can make time. Yeah. Do you counsel when you're talking to young residents and medical students to do this? Oh, I mean, yeah. my impression is when I meet these people, you know, it's their whole life. Yeah. And so, it's what they've been training for, and it's what they're obsessed with, and that's, they spend every moment. Right. You're absolutely right. So there are two parts to this in, in my mind. One is somehow in our training of people to be doctors, particularly medical students, mm-hmm. we give them, first of all, there's, it's, a, it's hard work. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. You can't deny it. That's not going to go away. But we somehow give students the idea that if they're doing something else other than studying medicine, that somehow they're, they're being naughty or evil. Wasting time. Or yeah. Exactly. And they're not. Mm-hmm. And they need it. And so, so they have to have permission. So I tell them directly, one of the things, when I meet with students, I often say to them, you know, what do you like to do for fun? And this is what I hear all the time. (laughs) Well, I used to love to play the piano, and I used to play the piano every day, and I haven't played the piano in two years, but as soon as I graduate from medical school, I'm going to start playing again. And I tell them, you're never going to be less busy, and there is time to play the piano now, and not only is it okay to do it, you need to do it. You need to do it. And then I make some suggestions about how they might make time to do it. But, yeah, they need to do it. Um, The other thing is uh, I keep a guitar in the office. I've heard stories about this, actually. (laughs) Well, I started doing it, Andy, just uh, for myself. Mm -hmm. It was selfish. It was, you know, if I had five minutes, I'd take a guitar out sometimes and I'd just you know, pluck on it in my office. Um, and then I started to take it to, uh, we have a morning conference every morning. I started to take it uh, just before the conference would start, I'd play, and I noticed that it changed the whole dynamic. So students would come in, um, and if I were playing the guitar, they'd smile, they'd talk to each other, uh, They'd be engaged in conversation. I'd hear what they were, you know, thinking about and worrying about and doing. And um, and then I started to get phone calls. People would call me and they'd say something like this. They'd say, uh, Dr. Lorber, you probably don't remember me. Uh, I was a resident in 1982, and I'm in practice here in Tennessee, and I have a really tough ID case. Would you have a minute to talk about it? And I'll say yes, and then they say, well, before we talk about it, are you still playing the guitar? That's what they And, you know, it's not that they're interested in me playing the guitar. It sort of, like, gave them permission to do something else. And so if I'm still playing the guitar, it's okay for them to play soccer every Sunday. Interesting. Or, (laughs) you know, or knit or whatever it is they do. Do you hear frequently from old residents and medical students? Yeah. I bet you do. It's great. Yeah. But yeah, I was mentioning before. I've I've heard stories about the the guitar playing, and it just puts a whole different. Di- I guess a, a relaxes the room yeah. in a way that yeah it change, no, changes, it changes the whole everything. the whole dynamic. You know, it's surprising. I mean, I it wasn't something I expected, but it's there. It's real. What is the biggest difference between like when you were a, a medical student or a resident and what you see today? 
Well, if you just look around the room uh, at medical students, I mean, my class, there were, uh, I think, five women. Mm. We had uh, one person of color in the entire class. The entire medical school class. Yeah. In my entire medical school class, was, and he was, uh, he was uh, from Africa. We had no African-Americans. Hmm. We had no uh, Latinos. We had, I mean, it was you know, pretty homogeneous, hmm. white guys. Yeah. It's so different, you know, and uh, it's better. And I think, uh, you know, people are happy to be doctors. They're smart. They're engaged. They're interesting. And as we said at the beginning, you know, they, they know a lot of stuff. <laughs> but I, Way better with you know, technology, right? In the, in the second year when I lecture in microbiology, in one of my lectures, I show some uh, paintings that hang in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And I ask them, you know, how many people have ever seen this painting? This painting is in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. How many people have been there? Um, and the good news about that is more hands go up now than went up 15 years ago. Hmm which I find encouraging. But I tell them, you know, you need to go there and you need to, I tell them some other places they might want to go, so. You know, you mentioned before infectious diseases. I didn't realize, is it a relatively, relatively speaking, uh, new specialty? Yes, it's, it's relatively new. I mean, if you think about it, um, there were there were lung doctors who sort of specialized in taking care of patients with tuberculosis, which, mm -hmm. you know, used to be an incredibly common illness uh, everywhere, including this country. Uh, but I think it really, with the advent of antibiotics uh, and the ability to do something and the development of vaccines and then the explosion of antibiotics that, that followed, uh, you needed people with real special expertise, and also th all the new diagnostic tests mm -hmm. that we developed that enabled people to make diagnoses that previously couldn't be made. Um, yeah, it's a relatively new specialty, and it's expanding and changing and ever exciting. Yeah, it's great. What, um, in the time you've been in the field, what do you think has been the best or the biggest advancement? Uh, in my personal life, the the biggest, well, the, you, you, you just can't deny the value of vaccines. I mean, you know, you look around and you I think about I imagine you have no patience I, I mean, for you know, the... Well, I, I spent many years uh, going to a wonderful conference at St. Christopher's Hospital, pediatric hospital, that Dr. Sarah Long uh, ran and still runs. Yeah, she's still Tues there. On Tuesday <laughs> afternoons. And... At those conferences, we would see a child with bacterial meningitis due to haemophilus about once every two weeks. And some of those children died. Many of them were uh, left deaf. Uh, and in 1990, we got a haemophilus vaccine that are given to every child born now. And that illness is gone. You just never see it anymore. And that's great. So there are things like that. Uh, rubella, uh, you know, congenital rubella caused a lot of uh, cognitive impairment, uh, terrible things, and, you know, it's gone. I mean, it's, you just don't see rubella anymore. So that's great, but, you know, the AIDS epidemic was a catastrophe, um, but now 
you know, AIDS has turned into a, a chronic it's like illness. like a chronic you know, manageable you, disease. I, yeah. I still have a couple of patients that I follow that I've been following for, you know, over 20 years. You know, I see them now every four months or six months. They come in. How are you? They tell me about their grandchildren. <laughs> they show me pictures. Which was unthinkable. You know, I examine them. Ago. They're fine. I write them prescriptions to renew their pills. They take one pill a day. They come back six months later. I mean, it's it's a whole. That's a phenomenal advance. Hmm. You know, the one thing I come out of this uh, talk with you is, you seem to have such a balanced life. Uh, well, balanced. I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> trying. <laughs> is there anything in particular? I mean, you have so many interests outside of medicine. Part of me would have guessed 10 years ago that when you retired, you would go and explore those. But you've kept your foot, or more than your foot, in the medicine. So well, each part of your life is giving you something, it sounds like. Yeah, and, uh, and I love medicine and I love science. And when I retire, I'll still read medical journals and try mm-hmm. to keep up with the science. But uh, I'll paint more. You'll you know? paint more. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, uh, being able to spend more time with my friends and my family, that, that's important to me. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And good to catch up with you. Good to see you again. All right. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Off the Charts, stories from people who make medicine work. If you like this episode and you want to help us out, please subscribe or rate or review the podcast, which will help other people find us. The podcast is currently available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and our website, which is offthechartspodcast.com. To get in touch with us, just email offthechartspodcast at gmail.com, or you can shoot us a message over on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for more episodes from Off the Charts.